talk about, you know, our brain's function, we say the right side of our brain controls the left side of our body and vice versa. The left side of the brain controls muscles on the right side of the body. Um, I often describe our brain sort of like a heart. You know, there are these two sides, the right hemisphere and the left hemisphere, and they sort of fold in and, and sit together like this. But really, they're only connected via the corpus callosum. So it is the, the largest white matter tract in our nervous system that sits right in the middle and it connects with uh, white matter axons, the right and the left side together. So while it's true, the right side of our brain controls the muscles in our left hand and the left side of our brain controls the muscles in our right hand, they have to be able to know what the other one is doing to coordinate themselves in time and space. So for buttoning our shirt this morning or for buckling our, our belt, it's great to have individual control of each of those of the hands but they have to know where the other one is in time and space to be able to coordinate the movements together. Welcome to Health and Human Science Matters, a podcast by Colorado State University's College of Health and Human Sciences. I'm your co-host and digital media strategist, Avery Martin. And I'm Matt Hickey, Associate Dean for Research and Graduate Studies. In our college, we make it our mission to optimize human health and well-being through discovery and innovation. Don't just take our word for it. Each episode, we sit down with people who fulfill that mission, our college faculty and staff, well, today we're lucky enough to have a friend and colleague from Health and Exercise Sciences, Dr. Brett Fling. Brett and I, of course, share the same home department and, in fact, have shared some job responsibilities over there, right? That's right. So we know each other well, perhaps uh, better than Brett's willing to admit, to be honest with you, though. He's he's uh, seen me at my best and my worst. So uh, we're glad to have you, my friend. Welcome. Uh, it's, it's a pleasure to be here. I appreciate it. As we were just, just saying, I've, I'm a, a big podcast fan, and so I think I've listened to, to every episode of this show. And Great. Uh, I think I'm going to try and get out of the way a little bit. We'd like to hear a little bit more of the uh, dulcet baritone Avery, I think, on this episode. <laughs> the perfect, perfect voice. Well, thanks. As we say repeatedly, because we mean it every time we say it. <laughs> well, today's perfect voice is Brett, so. That's right. We can hop right, right. into it. That's right. So, of course, you know the drill. We're interested in getting to know your scholarship story. And, and again, our, our aspiration is potentially prospective students or even, you know, really career faculty or postdocs who are looking for a job somewhere, right, might, <laughs> might listen to something like this and go, oh, wow, right? The other half of this, of course, is we all understand none of us is, is defined by, by what we do here on campus. There's much more to life than being an academic. And I say that even as somebody who loves my job, right? I, I really almost every day pinch myself thinking I can't believe I yeah. get to do this. But there's there's that story about what do we do when we're not on campus, right? And so we will talk about your journey, uh, talk about where you sort of grew up and mentors, educational influences, et cetera. But we want to start with big ideas and big problems that you and your lab pursue. Hey, you, you bet. I'll, I'll echo your thoughts and say that I, I really stumbled into this as a job and I, I love it. There is nothing I can envision I would rather do at this point in life. And it's it is a full life. We, we keep busy 24-7, that's for sure. You know, the big picture questions that we're interested in, We our group studies how your nervous system and your brain in particular controls your muscles to make you move. We're really interested in how you're able to coordinate your hands and your fingers together to, to button your shirt and tie your shoes in the morning uh, all the way up to how do you maintain your balance and walk around and, and enjoy the, the quality of life and, and interact with the environment around you? So our, our work is really at that intersection of the, the biomechanics of how you move and the, the neural control of how you move. How do you actually put these pieces together to successfully navigate your environment and, and do the things that you want to do in life? We use a wide variety of approaches to assess your, your, your neural structure and your neural function and then relate that back to, to behavioral elements. And, and for us, behavior means walking, balancing, uh, using your hands to accomplish a task. How do you voluntarily control 
the movements that you want to make. That's cool, right? Yeah, and it's absolutely. predicated on a, on a background of a clinical population you're particularly interested in, right? Very much so. So we, we often say that we, we use uh, human participants almost like uh, those who do more uh, bench work use a, a knockout mouse. So we use <laughs> folks with clinical populations who have very known uh, neuroanatomic, so, so structural issues or impairments within the nervous system, or neurophysiologic, so some functional communication issues within the, the nervous system, uh, particularly within the brain. Um, you know, we, we've done a lot of work in a variety of populations, Parkinson's disease, individuals in the chronic stages of, of stroke following a, a neural insult. Uh, but the, the large, large majority of our work is in folks with multiple sclerosis. And in Colorado, MS is a particular challenge, if I remember my my national demographics, right? Yeah, multiple sclerosis. MS is a, is a really unique disease. It sits at the intersection of uh, not quite being a, a neuro disease. It, it has a, a lot of neurodegenerative components to it, but it's also an autoimmune disorder at its heart. And so as a result, it ends up being a bit of a strange one to study. And it is, uh, you know, all humans and, and all disease states are, are very heterogeneous. They're different across the, the group, but MS tends to be really heterogeneous. There is an incredible amount of variation in how severely it impacts an individual. And uh, along those lines of it being really unique, it's also very geographically specific. So the further away from the equator you get, the further north you get, uh, the, the more and more common it becomes. The exact reasons for this remain a little bit unclear, but there, there are certainly some, some genetic and environmental components that seem to come together. And again, I'm not entirely sure why, but Colorado, for, for lack of a better word, is sort of a hotbed for folks with MS. It is uh, incredibly common and, and prevalent here in Colorado. And as a result, it, it helps us uh, be able to, to, to find the participants we need to really be able to study it. That's fascinating, isn't it? Yeah. So talk to us about some of the cool tools in your lab. So this would range from wearable sensors so that somebody's yeah. performing a task to, of course, you know, wall-mounted motion capture cameras and treadmills with not one but two belts because any old fool can have one belt on their treadmill. Sure. We got to <laughs> gotta have two. And even even maybe a little bit about TMS if you're willing to share. Yeah, you bet. So we, we kind of use everything under the sun. Maybe I'll start with the, the behavioral pieces that we use to assess how you move, the quality of, of your movement, uh, both inside and outside of the lab. And then maybe I can transition over a little bit to how we get at that neuro uh, component, the structure and the function of, of your brain and how it contributes to those movement pieces. So we, we have a what you would call sort of a traditional or a, the old gold standard biomechanics lab. So we have those infrared cameras that are mounted uh, up on the ceiling and, and allow us to get a great three, 3D, three-dimensional uh, assessments of how you move. So we put those shiny passive reflective markers on known anatomic spots on the body, your elbow, your shoulder, your knee, your ankle. And from there, we can reconstruct and make a model of how you're moving, how you walk and how you move in space. Uh, this is the, the same sort of green screen technology they use to make all the video games now and movies like Lord of the Rings. This is a very old reference. I always use Lord of the Rings and I, I realize now it's 25 years old almost. It's a class. Uh, <laughs> the, the Matrix, I, everything from when I was in, uh, in college. And so we, we use those to now reconstruct what we would call the kinematics or the range of motion of how you move. How much do you flex and extend your knee, your ankle, your hip as you walk through through our laboratory? Uh, we pair that together with things, as, as uh, Matt just alluded to, we have something called a split belt treadmill within our lab. So as opposed to maybe that one, that sad treadmill you have in your garage or hiding out down in the basement or the one you go use at the gym where you set it to five miles an hour and you go for a jog, ours has two belts instead of one. So we have one belt that we can control for each leg. So we can set them to the exact same speed. We can set both belts to five miles an hour and you'd walk just like you would on a regular treadmill. 
or we can set them to different speeds and force you to adapt or change the way that you're walking to, to essentially force you to change the coordination between your two legs as you walk. Hmm. Uh, you can use this in a variety of fashions. It's, it's been sort of pioneered in the, in the use of motor learning work. So how do we, how does our nervous system adapt to, in this case, a real heavy physical stimuli that's forcing you to move differently? For our work, we use it from a, an intervention or a neurorehabilitation standpoint. So we're really interested in, again, in folks specifically with multiple sclerosis. One, one of the cool things about the work that we do is, despite its real heavy prevalence, MS is about as common as Parkinson's disease at this point in time. It tends to be much less researched. Historically, there's just been a lot less work on folks with MS than there has been on Parkinson's disease, individuals with a stroke, now traumatic brain injuries and sports-related concussion. Uh, I think because MS is so unique in its um, pathology, it makes it difficult to study. And so as a result, there's not a lot of work in it. So we get to steal from all of these other clinical populations work that's been done prior in stroke and Parkinson's disease and, and move it into the MS world. And so that's really one of the approaches that we use is, is the split belt treadmill. If you have multiple sclerosis, you tend to have a more affected side and a less affected side. Often uh, someone with MS will say, oh, my right leg is my bad leg. And if you have a more affected side and a less affected side. From a walking standpoint, you tend to take a nice big step with your quote unquote good leg and sort of drag your bad leg along for the ride. You, you develop a limp. And as you do this week after week, month after month, year after year, decade after decade, it becomes more and more and more pronounced and that, that bad leg gets worse. So what we can do with that split belt treadmill is we can we can get rid of your limp by forcing you to walk differently. So we actually speed up your bad leg and make it walk twice as fast as your good leg. Now, as a result, you can't take that nice big step with your good leg and drag the bad leg along for the ride. You're forced to take bigger, longer, faster steps with that more affected leg. And we can do this within, I mean, honestly, you adapt within about 30 seconds. It's, it's really radical to watch. But within just a 10 minute session, we can completely change the way an individual walks and coordinates their two legs. Um, you know, that, that's great from a very short-term acute standpoint. It's great to be able to, to make this change in the lab for a 10-minute set, but then you leave the lab and 10 minutes later, you're, you've kind of gone back to the old way of doing things. So one of the things we're really interested in is how do we get this to persist? How can we get these acute changes that happen in the laboratory to become chronic changes that will stick with you over, over the rest of your life? Together with the split belt treadmill, what we do is we pair it with different kinds of wearable devices that an individual can take home with them and get out of the laboratory and put them on day to day. So you might think of a Fitbit or the Apple Watch that you're wearing right now. Uh, those are commercially available devices and there are a wide variety of commercially available devices to stimulate muscles or sensory feedback systems. So we specifically stimulate somatosensory receptors or what are called proprioceptive receptors that give your nervous system information about where you are in space. They're telling you where your foot is, how much your ankle is bent. We're all using it right now as we sit in our chair telling us, are we leaning a little to the left or to the right? We're getting constant feedback from the periphery of our bodies to tell us where we are. And we can augment or enhance that feedback with these wearable devices while someone's on the treadmill. And then we, we hope this is a, a process that's called neural entrainment. They then take that with them and by wearing this, this sensor at home while they're in the grocery store, while they're walking through the, the parking lot or the hallway, walking around in their house, they're getting this constant enhanced sensory feedback to really change the way their nervous system controls their movement. So we use wearable devices, we use these, these fancy treadmills and, and 3D motion capture, and we pair all of that together with a variety of non-invasive brain imaging approaches to look at the structure and the function of the brain to try and help us, A, 
predict how people are going to respond to these interventions that we try, like the split belt treadmill, and or to identify who responded well to it and who didn't. So mm -hmm. this is a, a classic issue in neurorehabilitation for, for, for any population out there. When you do some sort of intervention, some folks respond really well. They look a lot better after the intervention. Some folks respond a little bit. They, they improved on some things, but they, they didn't do great. Some folks don't improve at all and might even look worse following the intervention. It might be the wrong intervention for them. And this is one of the big picture questions from a neurorehabilitation standpoint is, can we identify why? Can we figure out why did some of these folks respond real well? Why, why didn't some of these folks respond well? And so this is where our, our brain imaging components come in is to try and be able to look at what are either things that predict people's responses or what are some of the things that change following that intervention in the way their nervous system communicates that really tells us, ooh, this is the, the group who, who responded really well. So we use a variety of, of magnetic resonance imaging approaches, MRI. You can do all kinds of things with an MRI besides just take a nice picture of your torn ACL. So we can get high resolution structural images of your brain to look at things like the, the volume of specific areas within your brain that might be of interest to us. We can do what are called functional MRIs. So we can give you a task in the MRI scanner. We can have you tap a finger and see what areas of your brain light up, what areas of your brain are turning on to control that muscle activity. We can do this for a variety of behaviors. We could show you scary faces in the MRI and see where, the, where those sort of fear uh, areas are within your brain. We can give you hard math problems to do and, and see where attention and focus and memory. And th there are a variety of behaviors. Just like scary faces. Math. <laughs> 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 uh, now, if anyone's ever had an MRI, what, what's the number one thing they tell you when you go in the MRI? Don't move. So it's really difficult to take some of these pieces of how does your brain turn on to control movement if the number one goal in the MRI is don't move, stay perfectly still because we can't have your brain moving around. We've got to localize where everything is. So as a result, we try and get away from the MRI and get into a little bit more what we would call functional brain imaging approaches. And this is where we work with folks like uh, Dr. Jacqueline Stevens from the OT department using mobile brain imaging approaches, whether that might be electroencephalography, EEG, or her uh, current milieu is, is functional near-infrared spectroscopy, FNIRS. And these are caps you can put on somebody and we can now have them walk on our split belt treadmill and record their brain activity in real time to see how is it different when they're walking in the treadmill and the two legs are moving at the same speed versus when we have that split belt going and now one leg's walking twice as fast as the other. Where in the brain does that show up as different activity? How, how does the nervous system encode this to adapt and change the movement patterns? Uh, and what does it look like? Maybe if you are a neurotypical individual, versus a person who has MS. How does that brain activity look different? Uh, how does it look different when we augment that sensory feedback system? How is the brain changing its activation patterns in response to these different neurorehabilitation approaches? And the hope is from, from using those types of pieces, we can really start to identify why some people respond really well to a given intervention. And we can start to stratify individuals into, ooh, you'd be a great candidate for intervention A, you seem like a much better candidate for intervention B based on these different activation patterns that we see in your brain. Let me prompt you with a couple of other questions. First, imagine a, a patient in Colorado that has MS and, and by some miracle of fate has not yet met Dr. <laughs> Dr. Flint, right? Um, you know, they hear something about wearable sensors and I think I can do that. So when, when you are sending a, a research participant home and trying to maybe entrain that gait pattern that was induced for a short period of time on the treadmill, 
what kind of feedback am I getting? It might be asking, you know, is it, is it auditory? Is it, is it a vibration sort of thing? Is it some massive electric shock that I can't possibly ignore? What, what are we talking about here? So we, we try not to use the terms massive electric shock when we're talking to our participants. <laughs> we'll that from but <laughs> but it, it is sort of in that ballpark. So so right now, you know, there's, so, so I mean, your question is right on the money, Matt. There are all kinds of different sensory feedbacks that we, we could augment. We could augment with a visual stimuli. And we've tried some of that in the past with an auditory stimuli with a vibratory stimuli. There's all sorts of different sensory receptors that we could target. At the moment, our approach is using uh, a readily available, over-the-counter, relatively low-cost uh, approach that is called uh, transcutaneous electric nerve stimulation. So this is a, a TENS unit that has been used in, in rehab for decades. And there's a lot of really interesting work starting to come out that suggests this may sort of prime that sensory feedback system and send more information from the periphery into the central nervous system, up into your brain, giving you more information about where you are in space that then allows you to make a much better decision or an output to the muscles so that your, your motor control can improve because you're getting better information. Uh, this is one of the things that we know is impaired in a variety of populations. Again, stroke, Parkinson's disease, but certainly in folks with multiple sclerosis, this proprioceptive feedback of where they are in space they're not getting enough of it, and it, it travels very slowly in their nervous system. So oftentimes, the information they're getting that tells them where they are in space, if it's even 100 milliseconds late, they're now making an incorrect movement with their muscles because they're, they're, they're out of time, they're out of tempo with where they actually are because of this delay within their nervous system. So our approach is using this TENS unit to try and increase the quantity and the quality of that sensory feedback so that they can make more informed decisions of how to move. So we use these TENS units, we place uh, just kind of big stickers essentially on muscles of the lower limbs, uh, ones on the, the front, your, your shin muscle, if you will, that pulls your toes up in the air and your hamstring muscle on the back of the leg that really helps you bend your knee. And they wear them all day long and they just give a very low level uh, stimuli, just a touch below what we would call their threshold. So these individuals can't quite feel it, even though it is on. Interesting. And it's just going all day long. Um, and this tends to have a real systemic effect actually. So uh, we work an awful lot uh, and, and, and collaborate with a lot of ideas with uh, Dr. Roger Noka from down at CU Boulder. And he's been a, a pioneer in, in neuromotor control and neuromechanics for decades. Um, and, and his work has shown that even by putting these stimulating pads, electrodes on the lower limbs, it improves function of the hands. They, they tend to do better with coordination, dexterity. Uh, and so there's, there's some sort of systemic effect where this improves a wide host of motor control, not specific to, to one thing, which is really the, the, the holy grail from a neuro rehab perspective is can we improve everything, not just that one very specific thing that we train? Can we generalize it to your everyday life. This is really cool, right? Incredible. And so, so you know, I'm gonna put my nerd cap on here, you know? So th these are, are uh, external signals that the individual cannot feel, but the brain is certainly aware of it, right? I mean, again, this dichotomy of, I don't notice versus yeah, you know, it's, exactly it's not being right. detected is, is a really interesting kind of phenomenon. Tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, so you know the, the, the way that proprioception works is, is incredibly complicated, but you have what are called muscle spindles that are you know intramuscularly. So they're wrapped around individual muscle fibers within your muscles. And every time your muscle changes length, and I mean, we're talking about a nanometer, any change in your muscle's length, shorter or longer, these muscle spindles fire off and send information into the brain to tell it, hey, my, my elbow's lengthening a little bit, my elbow's shortening a little bit. 
It's getting information about how your joints are changing. This is how you move in your environment. You turn your muscles on to make your joints change their position. This TENS unit is preferentially or selectively activating these muscle spindles essentially constantly so that they are turning them on and increasing the amount of feedback that's happening in your nervous system and sending more signals into your brain. What do you think? I've learned so much. I feel like I just had the great opportunity to just be in one of your classes. So this was absolutely incredible. This is where I we're teaching. going to go with the fun. My, my head's going to explode. <laughs> <laughs> no. We're, we're, we're teaching science 101 there, right? HES 303. This is what we're covering right now in class. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, so let me ask you another question. It just came to mind. Has anybody attempted sort of a multiple feedback that, that taps multiple systems at the same time? Does that Does that make any difference? It's not just tactile, maybe I do the visual and auditory. So, so I'm sure the answer has to be yes. I am sure folks have done this. I, I don't have any good examples off the top of my head for, for what that might look like. But, you know, one of the things that we used to do from a, when we used to really target individuals with Parkinson's disease, we would focus on, on individuals who there's a subset of folks with Parkinson's disease who over time develop something called freezing of gait. And it, it's called that because this is this is what it manifests and behaviorally looks like. Folks look like they're frozen in place. They're trying to pick their feet up and take steps. And if you if you have this, people describe it as it feels like your feet are glued to the floor. I, I can't take a step even though I'm trying to. And you can just sort of see them stuck in, in place. And again, we, we don't know why some individuals develop this with Parkinson's disease and some don't. Also, if we describe it clinically, they look incredibly similar to to someone who doesn't have it and someone who does have it. What we've seen is that from a rehabilitation standpoint, doing a more standard motor-specific neurorehabilitation program, some of the um, sort of broad components of their gait, like gait speed and maybe their step length and stride length, improves by a standard motor rehab component, but that freezing component wasn't getting any better. They still continue to freeze, even though once they get going, their walking looks a little bit better. And so one of the things that we found was by pairing what we called our uh, ABCs, the agility boot camp. So we did a circuit training approach with them where they would do yoga and an obstacle course and boxing and a, a wide variety. Of, it's like going to the gym and doing some CrossFit essentially, but for uh, individuals with Parkinson's disease. If we paired that together with cognitive training at the same time, so now they're dual tasking with the boxing, with the obstacle course, with the yoga. By adding on this additional piece of not just the, the physical motor component of, of thinking about moving and how they move, but forcing them to do math, answer questions, do a wide variety of cognitive tasks at the same time, then we saw not only nice increases in those broad measures of gait speed and step length, but we saw really big changes in their, in their freezing of gait as well. It tended to really lessen it and reduce it. So again, sort of looking at this interaction of, I think for years and years, we always thought our motor system, there's very specific areas in your brain that send signals out to the muscle. And we thought, well, this is the spot to look at. If there's something wrong in that area, this is then how we can describe it uh, out in the periphery with the behavioral issue. What we really know now is that your brain is so densely interconnected that the, the prefrontal cortex that houses all these cognitive and attention centers is very heavily communicating with the motor areas of your brain to help drive and control how you move. And a breakdown in any of these loops and circuits really manifests in, in a wide variety of behavioral impairments. And if you're not looking in the right place, you might miss it all. Exactly. If you're focused on a particular that's, nucleus. That's exactly or right. It's interesting, isn't it? So a couple of things while we're on a roll here. T tell us about transcranial magnetic stimulation as a, as a tool, again, to study uh, the brain. So, so transcranial magnetic stimulation, again, getting away from the idea of a, a quote-unquote massive electrical shock. 
T TMS is a magnetic stimulator. So it's not an electrical stimulator. It's a magnetic stimulation. It works relatively similarly to the principles of a magnetic resonance imaging uh, scanner, an MRI. So we have in our lab, uh, it's called a figure eight coil. So it's a, a big piece of iron, essentially, that's shaped into a figure eight. And it's got a, a plastic housing around it. And when we turn that machine on, it generates a magnetic field. And when we hit the discharge button, when we when we hit the, the orange button, it discharges a magnetic pulse. We can hold this over your brain and in all of our brains, give or take, are organized in a very similar fashion. So we know where the areas are on the right side of our brain that control the muscles in our left hand or in our left leg or in our left foot. And by putting that magnetic stimulator over that spot on the right side of the brain and discharging that magnetic pulse, our brain converts it into an electrical signal. And if it's of sufficient intensity, if it's a, a strong enough magnetic pulse, we can turn those neurons on in your brain, which then make your muscle twitch. We can use it to assess indirectly neurotransmitter function within your brain. So we can use it to, if I wanna give that stimulation and make your muscle twitch, we can see how excitable those neurons are, which is a, an indirect measure of glutamate within your brain. That's our, our most common excitatory neurotransmitter in the nervous system. We can use it in a different context to assess how well your neurons can inhibit activity as well. So a GABAergic function is another way we can assess um, how well maybe neurons can, can turn things off or stop a signal that's going on in the brain. And so by having individuals do something and then stimulating that same spot in the brain, we can see how well we can turn that activity off for a period of time. Uh, there's different ways to assess acetylcholine uh, within the brain, cholinergic function as well. So, so through a variety of ways, we can use this to assess neurotransmitter density and, and, and uptake within these motor areas of the brain. And, and that's how we use it specifically as a, almost a diagnostic tool from a motor standpoint is how well can you turn neurons on and or turn them off? Again, in this, in this enormously complicated neural network of the brain, these are, are really important components for how you're able to now coordinate and get the appropriate signals at the appropriate time to the muscles that you want to control your movements. You know, TMS is also used in a repetitive fashion. So you can use it to give uh, a train of stimuli, a number of stimuli for 10 minutes, for 20 minutes, for 30 minutes to try and induce some neuroplasticity within the brain as well. So we might have neurons that aren't excitable enough and we want to increase their, their likelihood that they're going to turn on and discharge. So we can use a very high frequency repetitive stimuli to over... 20 or 30 minutes to try and induce some what we would call long-term potentiation. Can we get them more likely to turn on? And if they're more likely to turn on, the millions and hundreds of millions of neurons they connect with are now more likely to turn on. If we have some neurons that are maybe too excitable, we can also use it at a very low frequency to try and decrease the likelihood that those neurons will turn on. So we can try and institute some long-term depression within those neurons so that now they're less likely to turn on. This is actually a the only current FDA approved use for repetitive TMS is to treat individuals with depression. So when we use TMS, we try and target these motor areas of the brain to activate muscles or inhibit muscle activity. For individuals that are treating depression, they might move up to more in the prefrontal cortex areas of the brain, and they're trying to increase that neuronal activity and, and increase serotonergic uh, function. Can we sure. release more serotonin up here in the brain to try and, and, and mediate some of those symptoms? So they use TMS, maybe in conjunction with a pharmacology plan to say, hey, what if you, you swing by the, the, the doc's office once a month and get a stimuli and you've got your medication you're taking on the, on the daily basis and do those two pieces together, as you were asking earlier, Matt, sort of have that cumulative effect of, of enhancing brain activity, brain function, and getting it a little bit more uh, regulated. Cool.
So, so we've been doing this now. This is our, our fourth season, right? Yeah. And I think I've been waiting from the first one to be able to ask this question because I've always wanted to say corpus callosum. Right? Oh. And so it's finally arrived. <laughs> my so, favorite spot in the brain. Yes. You come to the right place. <laughs> so uh, I think even a lay audience understands, you know, the two sides of our brain, right? And so talk about the, the studies you do to try to understand how they're communicating with one another. So this is really where our, our work and, and what I've done for the past decade or so has, has really been heavily based on. So when we when we talk about you know our brain's function, we say the right side of our brain controls the left side of our body and vice versa. The left side of the brain controls muscles on the right side of the body. Um, I often describe our brain sort of like a heart. You know, there are these two sides, the right hemisphere and the left hemisphere, and they sort of fold in and, and sit together like this. But really, they're only connected via the corpus callosum. So it is the, the largest white matter tract in our nervous system that sits right in the middle and it connects with uh, white matter axons, the right and the left side together. So while it's true, the right side of our brain controls the muscles in our left hand and the left side of our brain controls the muscles in our right hand, they have to be able to know what the other one is doing to coordinate themselves in time and space. So for buttoning our shirt this morning or for buckling our, our belt, it's great to have individual control of each of those of the hands but they have to know where the other one is in time and space to be able to coordinate the movements together. And so this is where the corpus callosum comes in. It's connecting the right and the left side of the brain together, and it has what we would call primarily homotopic connections. So they're communicating with each other to let the other hand, know, one hand know what the other's doing so that you can, you can move them together. And we, although it's a little bit different, we think this is really important for your legs as well. So when we're walking uh, across CSU's beautiful campus on a snowy, icy day, we're not thinking about it all that much, but we are very, very deftly coordinating the right leg and the left leg and knowing exactly where they are in time and space as we step and swing one leg through and do it with the other one. And this is one of the things that we think we really impact by doing that type of training on the, on the split belt treadmill is really changing the way the two sides of the brain are talking to each other and, and maybe bringing a little bit more attention to where am I in space and how do I coordinate these movements together? So we're, we're going to pause for just a moment on brain stuff. We're going to come back to it, but we want, we want to talk about you and your, your academic journey. Because again, I think for, particularly for a recruiting perspective, grad students, a lot of them are going to go, ooh, that's cool. I, you know, I can relate to that. And I think it's cool. Uh, we're, we're dying to hear it. So talk to us about, you know, where did you grow up? Family? Uh, you know, an educational trajectory, we're always interested in mentors, people who still really you bear their influence. Yeah, it's, I, I think this is one of the, the, the fun parts of listening to this podcast and just getting to talk to all kinds of folks in, in academia at this point in time is is what a weird journey it is. And <laughs> mine is no different. I certainly never had designs or plans to do this as, as a career. I was not particularly invested as an undergraduate student, to be quite honest. And so it's my, my mom remains amazed that I work at a, at a university to this day. <laughs> she can't believe I still do stuff with school. Um, I'm, I'm a Colorado native, so I grew up west of Colorado Springs, uh, what you call up the pass, so up in a Chipita Park, and uh, just grew up loving the outdoors and loving athletics. I, I grew up with a just an amazing family. I have one older brother who beats me at every sport still to this day, uh, much to my chagrin. I can't I can't get the best of him. Um, my my dad was actually a race car driver. He's a, he was a gearhead growing up. He loved cars, and so he actually raced uh, the Pikes Peak Hill Climb wow. for probably about fifteen years. He was oh the rookie of the year back in I don't know nineteen sixty five or something Jeez. like that, and. Um, his hobby was was building and restoring old cars. So if, if you couldn't find him, he was in the garage with a wrench in his hand. And <laughs> he, he probably went through about 20 to, to 25 cars over the course of us growing up. So whether we like it or not, my brother and I are also very mechanically inclined. We had no choice in the matter. <laughs> um, 
Uh, we also, yeah, loved sports. So he, he went to, to Greeley to UNC on a baseball scholarship. And uh, I, I followed him there and was was not particularly focused on academics as a, a freshman or a sophomore in, in, in college. I, school always came very easy to me. And as a result, I didn't put in an awful lot of time and effort, uh, I think it's fair to say. And my sophomore year, I took advantage of uh, UNC, just like CSU is, is part of the WUI program, the Western United States Exchange Program. And so my freshman year at, at UNC, my roommate was from Maui. And about half of my floor in my dorm were all from Hawaii. They all wanted to get off the island and they, <laughs> they didn't realize Greeley was Greeley, but they wanted to come out to Colorado and go skiing. And so our, our entire floor was full of, of kids from Hawaii. And as we spent the year talking to them and saying, what, you know, how did you come here? How does this work? Why are you here? And we realized, oh, we can go to Hawaii for the same amount of tuition to go live in Greeley. And so my sophomore year, a couple of friends and I went to Hawaii and went to the University of Hawaii on, uh, at Manoa on Oahu's campus. And one of my friends who I went there with was a kinesiology major. And he was a senior, so he was actually at the very end of his uh, undergrad career. And he would bring home his biomechanics homework. And he didn't particularly enjoy math. And for one reason or another, I just have always gotten math. Math is easy to me for some reason. And so he would bring home his homework and go, here. And I would sit there and I would do it. And it was about athletics and human movement and motion. And I thought, oh, this is awesome. I didn't know you could do math. And it was actually like it had some relation to something I was interested in. Yeah. And so I, I came back from Hawaii and then came back to UNC. And I switched my major from who knows what I was doing and, and switched to kinesiology. And my, the first class I took was biomechanics with uh, Dr. Gary Heiss, who uh, was the he's, he's been serving as the department chair there for about the last five to, to 10 years, I think, and is. Uh, a fabulous mentor to this day. I email with him regularly. And, you know, he's an amazing guy in a variety of levels. And I just, I loved being in the classroom with him as an instructor. I found his class incredibly challenging and interesting as that first sort of introduction into kinesiology. My senior year, he let me take a graduate course with a, a bunch of graduate students mm -hmm. that he was teaching. So sort of, a, you know, an upper level biomechanics class that again, just hit me right. And I, I loved it. He helped me find an internship uh, as I was uh, finishing up. So similar to our program here in HES, you had to do an internship to graduate from the Kines program there. And so I got to go work at the uh, Children's Hospital down in Denver at the Center for Gait and Movement Analysis. So it is a 3D motion capture clinical gait laboratory. And, you know, a lot of folks were going off to do their internships at 24-hour fitness and things like that. And oh, I thought, sure. I didn't go to college to go, you know, work at a, a gym. I want to do something with this. And so Dr. Heiss said, well, you know, here's an idea. I, I can put in a phone call for you. And I got down there and it blew my mind. That job really changed my life for, for what I wound up doing. I, I worked there during the summer as an intern. And since it was in a children's hospital, primarily we saw children with cerebral palsy. So these are individuals who had uh, a neural injury preterm or, or during birth or, or immediately after birth. And depending upon the, the location and the severity of that injury to the brain, really then dictated the severity and, and, and what their behavioral impairments and issues looked like. So we would see about eight kids a week and they would come in and do our clinical gait analysis. So we would start off with a physical therapist and I was the, you know, I was the intern. So I was walking around holding a clipboard, just writing down numbers and doing what I was told. And so we would do a physical assessment, range of motion, strength, spasticity, all these things with the physical therapist. Then we'd take them out and I'd get them all gussied up with a variety of, of sensors. So as we spoke about earlier, those reflective markers on bony landmarks in the body so we could reconstruct that model of how they walk. We put electrodes on the muscles of the lower limbs so we can see their muscle activity, 
when are they turning on? When are they turning off? How much are they turning on? What's that activity of the muscles look like? And we would then do a, a gait analysis to see how they walk. What, what do their movements look like? How much range of motion do they have at the hip, the knee, the ankle? What does the strength of those muscles look like? Are they turning on at the right time? And would put all of these pieces together and we would work with a number of physical therapists. The lab had a full-time biomechanist. Um, and then the, the sort of co-directors of the lab were the chief orthopedic surgeon and the, the head of rehab medicine for the children's hospital. And so we would get together once a week and have case review. And so we would go through the eight individuals we saw the prior week and we'd have their report up and we'd just go around the room talking about, well, I saw this and you know we, we noticed that she was weak here and she was a little bit spasticity on this muscle. And after we talk about them for a while, we would then make these recommendations that to me as an intern blew my mind, whether this was you know a, a course of drug therapy, pharmacology, would we inject Botox to try and decrease spasticity within a muscle? Would we suggest maybe an ankle foot orthosis, an AFO or a knee ankle foot orthosis, some sort of physical therapy approach? Or I think what was maybe not the most common, but very often was some sort of surgical intervention for these kids to try and assist in their movement patterns. And these, these surgeries, again, to, to me as a, a young person who was just getting into the medical field were astonishing. So they were things like muscle lengthening. They would go in and cut the fascia on the muscle and cast it in a real extended position to try and get these tight muscles to stretch out. There would be muscle transfers. They would cut one of the quadriceps muscles and wrap it around and suture it to the hamstring because that muscle was turning on at the wrong time. And as a result, it was making the knee go straight. If we move its position and, and attach it to the hamstring, now when you turn that muscle on, it bends the knee. And I would go and quote unquote assist with the surgery. So the, the head of orthopedic uh, surgery who would come you know, to sit in on these grand rounds would then say, well, you can come up and see this one if you want to. So, so, in would, the OR. so I would go scrub in and I would oh. hold a leg while they're in there, uh, you know, doing this radical carpentry and, uh, you know, <laughs> cutting bones in half and turning the femur and, you know, rotating it, uh, moving the muscles, doing all these pieces that I, I was blown away. I, I had no idea that this was, <laughs> this is what would, what was happening. So then of course, graduate school is, is suddenly appealing to you, right? So, so from there, it seemed, I, I, I love this as an idea, as a career, as a job. And I, I really want to figure out how, how can I be knowledgeable enough to, to, to feel comfortable in making some of these suggestions or these decisions? Uh, and so started looking around for graduate school. And, and I think unbeknownst to me, I picked an incredible school to go to and a fabulous program. So I you know, was, uh, again, at the very nascent stages of my career, I knew very little about kinesiology programs and rankings and who did what. And, and the, really, I was very naive to the field of research in general. I was working in a very clinical setting in a hospital. We did the exact same type of analysis every single day. I didn't know what research was, I think it's fair to say. But I thought, well, I'll go get a master's degree and then maybe I could be like the lab biomechanics person. I could be that person who sort of oversees the biomechanics piece of, of one of these clinical gate labs. So I went to the University of Massachusetts. This is a common story I always like to tell grad students. I applied to work in a, a great biomechanics lab there. And I went and sort of interviewed and met with the, the director of the biomechanics lab, went to, went to UMass Amherst to visit. And when I got done uh, with the interview, I got an email about a week later that said, hey, I really enjoyed your visit, but uh, I don't think I'm going to take any students next year. Um, and he said, but, you know, you, you have a, a good resume. I could pass it around to other faculty if anyone else is looking for a master's student. And I said, sounds great. I really want to go there and, and move to Massachusetts and join that program. So feel free to pass it around. So he passed it around and I got uh, an email from a different faculty member who studied neuromotor control. And he said, I see you have some electromyography background, some EMG with working with the, the clinical populations and, and assessing muscle activity. That's what our lab does. Would you want to join us? 
And <laughs> with no thought whatsoever, said, sure, that sounds great. I'll go, I'll go do that. <laughs> so I went and joined uh, his lab and spent two years there working on my master's degree. And we studied uh, what we would call intramuscular EMG. So we would insert needles into the muscle itself and study individual motor units. So when you turn on a muscle or activate a muscle, you turn on one neuron at a time, which activates a set number of muscle fibers. And the more force you need, the more and more neurons you turn on until you get the amount of force you're looking for. Um, And so we would study those individual motor neurons and how they are recruited within the muscle uh, in college-aged kids, in grandma and grandpa, how are they different? What if you're really, really heavily strength-trained, you're a great uh, anaerobic function, does that change the order and the process in which you recruit these motor neurons to activate your muscle? And I spent a couple of years doing that, and so really looking at spinal-level control of muscle activity. And when I got done with those, those two years of the master's, I did exactly what I thought. I applied to a bunch of different clinical gate labs. Uh, the Shriners Hospital is a huge network throughout the United States, and they were sort of the uh, originator of these clinical gate labs. And so they have them uh, all over the country. And I got offered several jobs to go be the lab biomechanist at these different Shriners hospitals. And so after talking about it and talking with other graduate students and my advisor for a long time, I said, I just, I don't want to go do this. I kind of like the research actually. And so I, again, had a great advisor uh, during my master's and he said, well, you know, I have some money. You could just stay here for a year and work as a, as a research assistant, do a couple of other studies in the lab and think about what do you want to do next? What would make the most sense? So I thought, that sounds great. So I, I stayed and I worked as a, a teaching assistant and a research assistant in the department and stayed an extra year. This is uh, coincidentally where I met the great Dr. Braun uh, originally. So he was a faculty member at UMass at this point in time, which is a heavy contributor to how I wound up here years later. <laughs> and so I stayed for about a year. And as I was doing it, I got late into the fall and into the winter. And I thought, I don't want to be the person who just does the same thing day after day in some clinical lab. I, I, I want to direct the lab. And to do that, I need to get a PhD. So now I guess I'm going to go to more school which again, much to my parents' amazement, thought, are you kidding me? How can you still be in school at this point? Uh, and so I started looking around for different programs to, to go do a, a PhD. And not dissimilar from my master's experience, I applied to work with an amazing individual at the University of Michigan who did really cool biomechanics work. And I really wanted to go work in his lab and learn uh, about walking uh, assessments. And he was starting to do some of this mobile brain imaging component. And I thought this is the perfect fit. So I applied to his lab and I went to Michigan in January in Ann Arbor and it was cold as all get out (laughs) and spent a couple of days interviewing with him and got back. And about two weeks later, I got the fateful email of, you know, I don't think I'm going to take any students next year, (laughs) but I'd be happy to pass your uh, resume around to other folks in the department. And I said, I guess that sounds good. (laughs) And he passed it around. And again, someone who did much more sort of neuromotor control contacted me and said, hey, you have a pretty good background. I'm looking for a PhD student. Do you want to join my lab? And I had always wanted to go to Michigan for some reason. I, I loved Michigan growing up. I loved the Fab Five. I just, Michigan was always high on my list of, this is an awesome place to go to school. So I said, sure, I'll join your lab. And I went there. And again, it worked out as just the, the perfect experience. She was the most incredible mentor. She is still a very good friend to this day. I worked with, with Dr. Rachel Seidler there. And I, I communicate with her very, very often still to this day. And so I started doing work in her lab and there we really went heavy into the MRI work. So we, I learned how to use an MRI machine, how to collect the anatomic pieces, the physiologic pieces. And actually over time, I wound up uh, getting trained on how to run the MRI machine. And so I, by the third year that I was there, I started doing a part-time job where I would go run the scanner about one day a week for everybody else's studies that was going on. So I became very, very ensconced in the world of of loud buzzing noises if you ever had an MRI with that terrible uh, uh, and I would sit there and listen to it all day long. Um, But really 
received fantastic uh, training in, in the, the nitty gritty of, of what the MRI does, how it works and how to use it uh, and, and received incredible mentorship from, from Dr. Seidler on, on what her job was, what it meant to be a professor and a faculty member at an academic institution and was something I had never given, I wouldn't say a second thought to, I'd never given it a first thought to. It had never crossed my mind as this is a job that I would do. And over the course of being there for several years, she had a couple of small children at that point, And I was just enamored with what she spent her days doing. I, I, I found it fascinating. I really loved going to our lab meeting every week. You just spent your time learning so much cool stuff on a weekly basis. So I thought, I can't believe this is what you do all day. Like This seems so cool. And so over the course of, of my time being there, I started talking to her about it and she's, you know, started filling me in on what her day was like and how she got into it, what her background was, what she loved about her job, what she didn't love about her job. And over time, I thought, I'm not going to go work in a hospital. I want to do this. <laughs> this is great. <laughs> uh, so when I finished my time there, uh, I was very, very sold on the idea of I, I want to be a, a professor. I want to work at an academic institution and do this for a career. And so the natural next step for many of us, not everybody admittedly, but is, is a postdoc, right? Natural next step was a postdoc. And, um, you know, those things I, I tell my students now, timing is everything, right? I mean, there's tons and tons of, of labs, places, individuals you'd love to go work with, but it may not be the right time to, to be able to go do it with them. So I was looking all over the country, all over the world for, and this is one of the cool things about a postdoc, it's a great time to, to get out of the U.S. and go explore a, a different culture, a different part of the, the, the world. But for me, unfortunately, uh, my, my dad was very sick at this point in time, and he had been diagnosed with cancer and was going through mm -hmm. treatments. And timing was everything in a great way. In, in this case, where I actually found a postdoc, my, my dad was, was living out in Southern California at this point. He and my brother uh, were out there together. And my, my mom was sort of going back and forth between Colorado and California as he was doing his treatments out there. And I, I found a postdoc position at the University of California, Irvine, which was about 50 miles down the road from where uh, the rest of the family was living. Mm. So we moved out there and it was a, a perfect uh, opportunity to, to get to spend a bunch of extra time with him that I never would have gotten to otherwise, which uh, to this day, I'm incredibly grateful we, we made that decision. So I joined uh, the neurobiology department at the University of California in Irvine and, and spent a year there working with folks uh, who had had a stroke. And so we, we worked at the medical center and we would have folks that were admitted with a stroke. And the first thing they get is an MRI to see the location and the severity. Where's the stroke? We then got to work with that MRI and see how are they doing a year later, five years later. We would track them uh, chronically down the road to see can we really predict based on what that stroke looks like the second you're checked into the ER right when you've had the injury? Is that pretty much the predictor that's going to tell us how you look a year later, five years later? Do, do we need all of these additional assessments that we do uh, millions and millions of times? Or can we tell right off the bat how it's going to look? Um, and it was a really interesting uh, set of studies and approaches. But... I got a grant to move somewhere else. And so, so we took off and went to postdoc number two. So I, I was only in Irvine for about a year. Uh, my family, my dad, my mom moved back to Colorado at that point in time. And so the, the pull to be in Southern California was less strong. I'm a, a Colorado mountainy type of a guy. I'm not a Southern California pavement type of a guy. And so I, I didn't love uh, the environment and the culture in Southern California where we were at. Um, but we got an offer to move to Portland, Oregon, and join the Oregon Health and Science University's uh, Department of Neurology. And there, it was a, a much better fit for the type of work that I was doing and was interested in and kind of where I saw my career going. So we went and joined the neurology department there, as a, again, still as a postdoctoral fellow, um, but started doing work in Parkinson's disease and multiple sclerosis. So I, I had a grant to go there to work on some multiple sclerosis um, work and really kind of get that line of work going that I had always wanted to do. And there was an enormous group of folks doing just 
really cutting edge Parkinson's disease research. And they've been there for, for 30 plus years and have really been at the forefront of a lot of the things that we know now. Living in Portland was a big draw. But then again, going back to the question of a mentor, uh, the, the individual I got to go work with at Portland is a giant in the field. She has been for a long time. She's sort of the original physical therapist who started doing research. So her name is, is Dr. Faye Horak. And she, I didn't realize what a big deal she was, to be honest. They, <laughs> they offered me a position. I said, sure, that sounds great. We, we want to move to Portland. So it sounds uh, great. And I spent the next five years having people go, oh, you work with Faye? <laughs> and she is a force to be reckoned with. She is an amazing person. She, she juggles a, a huge research team and agenda and is known throughout the world for her work. And it was the most impactful and formative uh, training experience I, I've, I've ever had. It, it really set me on the path that I, I've been on for the, the past 10 plus years. And, and she was really the, the guiding hand in, in all of it. And She's been doing it for such a long time that she has this enormous scientific tree uh, that there's nothing more enjoyable than going to a conference. And you're going to run into five different folks who were a PhD student with her, were a postdoc with her and have, you know, stories to tell. And you get to sit around and, and, and hit a happy hour and, and spend a couple of hours just listening to their experiences with her. She was incredible. And it was it was easily the best decision I've ever made from an academic standpoint and, and a career standpoint to get to go learn and work with her. That's so cool. Now, of course, you've throughout the talk made clear to our listeners how much of a home Colorado is to you, right? And so talk about the casting your eyes homeward while you were in Portland. Well, the great Dr. Hickey won't remember this, but the Department of HES had multiple faculty searches during the early 2010s. <laughs> and uh, yours truly applied to all of those repeatedly <laughs> because I really wanted to move back to Colorado. And you happened to be the search chair on several of those. Right. And you weren't interested in my application for uh, a few years. It's <laughs> <laughs> my biggest regret in life, to be honest with you. No, it was, uh, it was clearly the right decision at the time. I needed to garner a lot more training, and it, it worked out great that I was able to go do these postdoc experiences to really improve my, my capacity. So, so, yeah, Colorado was all, you know, certainly, like we say, timing is everything. It was always a pipe dream in the back of my head that I would love to move back to Colorado and be able to work here. Uh, and, and, and raised my family here. And when I came, I actually came out to, to CSU to give the, the HES graduate student seminar. So they, they run a, we, we run a student seminar series every Friday. And I was invited out to, to give a talk in, in 2014 as part of that seminar series. And I came out on a perfect Colorado April Friday afternoon. And I came and gave the talk and we got done and I was walking around campus. And I mean, the intramural fields were full of kids playing volleyball and there's soccer balls flying everywhere. And I just thought, oh, I miss this so much. You know, so I was at Oregon uh, Health and Science University at that point, and it is a very large clinical research complex, very akin to a Mayo Clinic, a Cleveland Clinic. That's the, the vibe there. It is a multitude of hospitals all garnered together in this huge research clinical complex. And it is an incredible place to work and, and do research, especially if you're interested in some of those clinical populations. And I came out to CSU and the sun was shining and the birds were chirping and, you know, the Frisbee was flying at your head every two seconds. <laughs> and we went home and I, I woke up Monday to go into work in Portland and it was raining and it was gray and gloomy. And I walked into the hospital and I thought, I, I don't like this environment anymore. This is it's an, an incredible opportunity and a great place to work. But man, I miss Colorado. And while I was out here giving that seminar at, at CSU, uh, the department of HES was in the midst of a search for a new department head. And so actually, as I was walking around the halls and talking to folks and doing my seminar, I saw posters and flyers everywhere for uh, Dr. Barry Braun, who was coming to give a talk the next week and interview for the department head. 
And I thought, I know that guy. I, I love that guy. <laughs> and I don't know what it was, three or four months later, he was officially announced as the new department head at HES. And so I sent him an email eight seconds later <laughs> and said, I, I know this is a ridiculous thing to send. And I know you haven't even started there yet, but I really want to come work there. And if you think there's going to be any job opportunities in the next several years, I just I just want my name on the list. I, I would love to be able to come and interview there and, and meet folks. And he responded and said, well, I'm not going to offer you a job, but I think we are certainly going to have some positions available in the, in the coming years that you'd be a pretty appealing candidate for. And so I, I think about three months later, there was a position available that was right up my alley. Uh, it happened to, to just work out again. Timing is everything. It worked out perfectly. And so I, I had the chance to come interview and, and, and get offered a position to come back here. And uh, I mean, it was the easiest decision I've ever made in my life. I was I was dying to move back to Fort Collins. And so you started with us what year? So I came out in the summer of 2016. Okay. Not that long ago, yeah. as it turns out. Not that long ago, but also well, seven, almost seven years. It feels like a lifetime somehow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's both quick and, and filled with some whole variety of experiences. Right? That is yeah. the truth. Right. So so tell us about, I'm going to call it the Fling Lab. You can adjust that in just a moment. But, but you know, the people you train and things you do, and we've stuck with this sort of cliche of a, of a day in the life, knowing, and then, you know, 100% of people have pushed back and said there is no typical day, you know, and that's fine, but you get the idea. We're, we're interested in life for you and your team as you're pursuing these questions that we started with. I mean, this is a pretty typical day for me. I do a podcast every morning at 9 a.m. <laughs> um, so yeah, so our lab is called the Sensory Motor and Neuroimaging Lab. It is very intentionally not called the Fling Lab. This is conversations I had with a lot of students as I was coming up through my graduate training, and we found we always liked labs that weren't named after the the head honcho. Mm-hmm. Uh, ours is the SNL. I love Saturday Night Live. It is one of my uh, guilty pleasures. I think <laughs> I've probably seen every episode ever. It's been around for almost 50 years, so that's a lot of TV I've watched. Um, and I very intentionally, are, we are the SNL. We are a pretty big lab. So on, on average, I would say for most years, we have somewhere in the ballpark of about five graduate students, a mix of master's and PhD students. We tend to have that exact same number of undergraduate honors students working on a thesis, and they're paired together with a, a graduate student. So we're getting that sort of symbiotic mentoring, uh, mentoring experience for the grad students as well to work hand-in-hand, one-on-one with, a, with an undergrad. Uh, and then we typically have a, a postdoc in the lab as well. So I, I would say that's about the, the right size for our group is somewhere in the 10 to 12 range of, of students working together in the lab. It is unquestionably my favorite part of my job. I love, this is one of the things that I really was not getting when I was at OHSU in Portland. It was a, a professional research lab. So we hired all professional research assistants and postdocs. You told them what project to do and they went and did it. Here it is what I love about my job, it's it's a, a, a teaching, a mentoring. I mean, the number of meetings I have in a given week is is hard to fathom, I, I feel like. Mm-hmm. And, and oftentimes, more often than not, they're impromptu as well. We're not setting something on the calendar, just my door is open and someone comes walking in and 45 minutes later, we're deep into something. Um, you know, our group is, is heavy on human participant data collection. So we have probably somewhere in the ballpark of four to five folks a week coming into the lab to get on the treadmill, get their brain stimulated, whatever it might be. And, and those are, are all projects run by, by different graduate students. Um, we have you know a weekly lab meeting that I said I always loved when I was uh, doing my PhD at the University of Michigan. I love sitting on those lab meetings and hearing about the, the wild variety of topics going on in, in human neuroscience. That remains my favorite part of the week. We have a wide variety of things we do in there that are talking about science, their professional development based, their team building, they're, they're all over the map. And 
I am very fortunate to, to get to work with an, just an exquisite group of passionate, curious, intelligent, I guess, young men and women. I'm getting old now. I have to call them young men and women now. <laughs> I, used to, I used to say I was just one of them, but now I'm, it's very clearly I don't fit in anymore uh, from an age standpoint. Um, and they're, they're just an incredible group to get to interact with and, and learn from and, and try and impart a little knowledge to them as well, depending upon what, what, the, what the question of the day is. Exactly. Right. You know, Brett, one of the many things that I've admired about you is the degrees of freedom you give to your trainees. That, that affords some really neat opportunities. I think it's unquestionably my favorite part of this as a career is the, is the opportunity to get to learn. I mean, we're recruiting and attracting and trying to get all of these incredible minds to come here and work with you. And then my job is not to dictate and say, well, this is what we do. You go do this project. So this is my sort of mentoring style is to really try and individualize it and give the freedom and the flexibility to folks to find what they're excited about, to find their passion. My, my job is not to tell you what your passion should be. It's to, it's to try and give you all the tools and resources that set you up and allows you to find what you really love and, and then foster that and, and help you go explore it and, you know, put a few bounds and put, put up a, a mild fence, maybe, a, maybe just some chicken wire to, <laughs> to, to rein, rein folks in a little bit and direct them, but to really let them explore and design and create and ask the, the, the research questions they're interested in and then to provide the, the resources necessary to really help foster it and, and let, it, let it flourish. And I don't know if it, if it always works out, but, but thus far it's worked out really well here. It's, it's, it's been a, a great approach for, for myself that I, I've really enjoyed. So talk to us about aspirations over the next five years or so. And we just throw around these numbers, but it, you, you think about, uh, you know, I'm now a tenured associate professor. Of course, I've been here for some time. I've got a nice team. And then even as people, of course, move on and they're doing their own postdocs or whatever, we we tend to keep this stable sized team. Your, your reputation is growing all across campus. And so aspirations over the next five years for, for your team. Yeah. So I, I think... In a lot of ways, what I envision is really expanding what my quote unquote team is. So you're talking about, you know, uh, across campus. And this is, I think, one of our our big picture designs and ideas at the moment is to really start to foster much more serious interdisciplinary collaborations uh, across groups. So we're working very heavily right now with a number of folks from the occupational therapy department to really take our sort of lab based neuroscience movement um, control ideas and really translate it and generalize it into activities of daily living. How do we get this stuff out of the lab and actually impact people's lives on a daily basis to make them more functional, more independent and improve quality of life? So, so you know, in the coming years, what I would love to see is really uh, solidifying and fostering these collaborations between, you know, you know, certainly within our college, but between us and occupational therapy, food science and human nutrition, uh, human development and family studies, there's just a number of folks across the board. We really have some great ideas. You're well aware of this. We've been working on um, with the Center for Healthy Aging, a variety of ideas as well. And so I think in the big scheme of life, you know, it's, it's nice to have uh, my quote, quote unquote, my lab, but I would really like to see our impact across campus really start to broaden and be able to then get that out into the community. That's really what, what I envision the next five years looking like. I can't wait to see it. That's awesome. It's going to be good. Yeah. And if you don't mind, cast your vision for your students as well. Like, what do you see the folks that are working in your lab now? What are they going to be doing? It's really cool to see the wide variety of things they go on to do. Uh, so, you know, a number of my students will, will stay in academia. So we have several who have gone on, finished a master's degree here and are now in, in great doctoral programs at universities around the country. Uh, ones who finished their doctoral degree here are now in those postdoctoral positions around the country we were talking about earlier. Several of them have been offered faculty positions at this point. So they're, they're kind of on that academic career path studying, you know, certainly not multiple sclerosis uh, per se, but studying those sort of brain behavior associations 
applications and how it relates to mobility control. Uh, we also have a number of studies who go on to slightly more clinical uh, directions. So I have a number of students who have gone on to DPT, Doctorate of Physical Therapy programs, and are <laughs> we are getting old. They're at the point of finishing those programs now and are going out into the world as maybe more clinical uh, physical therapists or research uh, physical therapists and kind of combining the two together. We have a former student who is currently in the uh, graduate program in occupational therapy here at CSU as well. And then certainly from our undergrads, an awful lot of them go on to those more clinical strains of a DPT program or uh, med school as well. So, you know, I, I hope that what we're doing is really, we also have uh, one who's gone on and is now working in the, the warfighter division of the Office of Naval Research out in San Diego and studying human performance and trying to wow. impact, impart some of these neuromechanic and neuromotor control and biomechanic pieces into how can we use this to improve human performance in, in a military fashion? Um, and so there's there's a wide range of stuff folks can go on to do. There's no question about it. And this really becomes the, the most fun part of this job is, is seeing where people go, what they're doing. We were, we were writing a, a grant last year and it's a, a, a training grant. So as a faculty member, you're going you're gonna to get money to help train uh, students. And so within there, you had to make up a table of what are, who have you trained in the past and what are they doing now? Mm. And so I got to fill in, you know, this, this two page sheet. And I thought, wow, these people are all incredible. They're all doing <laughs> yeah. such cool stuff yeah. now. This is great. <laughs> it was really awesome. fun. But opportunities really like cool. that are so great right, to yeah. reflect. So last two questions talk about the, the professional context in which we find ourselves, right? And so the first one, we're interested in your reflections on, on things you like the best about being a faculty member in the College of Health and Human Sciences. Yeah, so I think we, we probably just touched on that a bit is I really love the, the interdisciplinary nature and, and the way to approach the same problem from a wide variety of angles. You know, I, I've always had a good tie to this college. So two of my best friends from, from elementary school were actually construction management uh, undergrads here 20 something years ago. And, uh, and so I, I really loved it to get to still interact with folks from construction management now. But certainly from a research standpoint, we really heavily interact with food science and human nutrition, uh, occupational therapy, human development and family studies. And, and we, we use some of the same tools and we're interested in some of the same questions, but we do it in a wide variety of different ways. And I really love the chance to, to get together with those folks. So it's, it's a, a unique and, and really fantastic college to be a part of. It gives you some sense of the breadth, right? Yes, absolutely. So, of course, we are nested within this institution, Colorado State University, and CSU is a land-grant institution. And, you know, again, one of the things I've really enjoyed about working here is, is that that uh, mission, that land-grant mission is, is centered. It's taken very seriously. It's not just window dressing. So talk to us about what the land-grant mission means to Dr. Brett Flynn. Yeah, so and I think it's, it's probably very fair to say coming here, I didn't even know what the land-grant mission was. I was I was familiar with the idea uh, and the concept of land-grant universities and, and our good buddy, Dr. Lincoln, uh, but, <laughs> but I did not really know what that entailed and what it meant. And this has been one of my, you know, I love being back in Colorado. I love being in Fort Collins. All those things are really nice. Uh, one of my favorite things has been really understanding what the mission of CSU is and, and what that looks like in a, in a broader context within our Northern Colorado, within the state of Colorado, within the region of Wyoming and Colorado, Nebraska. And it's something that unintentionally or, or, or maybe subconsciously, I have really wound up dedicating my approach here on campus to, to that land grant mission. And so we, 
uh, are we have a, a great research team and we do we do good research I think um, I love teaching in the classroom this is one of the reasons I wanted to go back to an academic institution as well and not that clinical institution um, I thoroughly enjoy teaching both the undergraduate and the graduate level but but then the the community service and outreach piece is something that has really struck a chord with me and so we do a wide variety of things as as a lab group as a department and, and as a university that that I have tried to spearhead in a number of ways, but just really enjoy being a part of. Uh, so we do an awful lot of work with the National Multiple Sclerosis Society uh, in terms of fundraising and activism. Uh, we've participated in a different activity every year, whether it's the, the MS hike, hiking up uh, Keystone, the MS walk, uh, the muck fest a few years ago, or it's a, basically a tough mutter running around uh -huh. a five kilometer obstacle course and <laughs> yeah. just getting as messy as you can while you're having a good time. Uh, and that's something that has really uh, struck a chord with me. Uh, in addition, I'm a, a co-founder and, and, and a founding board member of the Brain Health Center of the Rockies, which is a, a nonprofit here in town, but that really has a, a national reach at this point. And we do a wide variety of activities, events, classes that are designed to, to promote brain health and wellness in different clinical populations, whether that's folks with Alzheimer's disease or, or the early stages of dementia, individuals with Parkinson's disease. We have a very large multiple sclerosis-based program, and, and we offer just a, a whole bunch of different classes, activities, events that are free of charge to, to anyone who's in the area that can come to them in person, and we make them all virtual as well for folks who want to join from, from Iowa or Florida or wherever else they might be. And that has become a, a huge part of my time and my scholarship is interacting with the, the group uh, and, and, and being able to, to get information out into the community and engage on a variety of levels. That's you know, great. for anybody who listens to this, right, the notion of what, what does Dr. Fling do in his spare time would probably make them laugh. Right? <laughs> <laughs> wow. Spare times, yeah. The spare times where I spend most of my time, we haven't even gotten to the family yet. A lot going on, <laughs> exactly. But you're a family man as well. So so talk to us again about other things that keep you occupied. Yeah, I have uh, I have an incredible family. So we, we have a, a blended family with five kids. So we have, we have a full-blown Brady Bunch uh, going on <laughs> at my house. Uh, uh, and so it is, it is hectic. We are... Uh, you know, ensconced in a lot of youth sports. So every night there's a practice. Every weekend there's a game. Uh, we've got some high school dances going. The Sadie Hawkins dance was Saturday night. Whoa. So there's a lot of action going on there. Uh, so, yeah, my, my wife and I keep uh, incredibly busy. Uh, she works for the, the Larimer County downtown. And so one of us is, is driving somewhere to do something about every second of the day. We, we coach a lot of flag football and soccer and basketball teams. And when we get the chance, uh, she and I love to get out of town and go hit the mountains and snowshoe a little. She's a, an avid camp. She's a, a fantastic camper. She knows cool. how to camp. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so uh, we, we love getting out of town when we can. Uh, and, and yeah, it's, it's, it's a busy life to say the least. <laughs> Good for you. Well, thanks for coming. We we really appreciate the time, the energy. Again, I think is we should figure out how to plug you in with this. <laughs> yes. Right into the grid. Yes, it would be really cool. So thanks for your time. I enjoyed the heck out of it. Thank you both very much. I talked too much. We didn't get to hear from Avery. I, I blew oh, it. No. <laughs> Not a problem. This, this is the important part. We heard from you. We heard about your journey. So I loved it. That's great. Yeah. Thanks thank you. Thanks, guys. Good to see you. Another great interview is in the books. Thank you for listening to this episode of Health and Human Science Matters. Stay tuned for the next episode. It's on the way. In the meantime, go listen to our episodes from seasons one, two, and three. And if you want to learn more about our CSU College of Health and Human Sciences, go to www.chhs.colostate.edu.